the best way to buy is when you don't have to. The best way to sell is when you don't have to, right? Hey guys, welcome to the CRE Project Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. We sit down with John McNellis of McNellis Partners today on the show. Um, Just an awesome guest. Uh, John uh, is a really, really well-accomplished, well-seasoned retail developer out of California that mainly focuses on grocery-anchored centers, both from an investment standpoint and also a value-add standpoint. Um, you know, has done anything from rehabs to ground ups. Uh, so just a really good guy to kind of get, uh, a really well-rounded perspective of the commercial retail development <laughs> side of the commercial real estate business. Uh, in addition to building McNellis partners, uh, over the years, he has also, uh, been very, very involved in ULI urban land Institute, and as actually a founding member of the Environmental Task Force for ULI and also ICSC. And uh, most importantly, he's actually an author as well. Uh, he has a book out there uh, called Making It in Real Estate, Starting Out as a Developer. Uh, I've personally read it a couple different times, and, and it's just a, it's a great book, uh, full of humor, um, which is obviously needed in, in, a, in a field like commercial real estate where it can often be so dry. And uh, it's just, it covers the fundamentals of uh, running a development company and, uh, you know, what, what it really takes. So highly, highly recommend the book. We'll put it in the show, na- the show notes as well. Uh, but just a great guy, uh, again, to get kind of a, r- a rounded perspective on. So we're going to cover, um, you know, his past, what he feels like it takes to be in the commercial development perspective, where he thinks retail is going to go. And then he's also obviously going to speak a little bit about COVID-19 as well. So hope you enjoy today's show. John, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, especially during a, a hectic time as of now to, to get on the show with us. We're uh, honored and humbled to, to have such a guy on with your level of experience. And uh, I think, you know, to start out, we most mostly like to just get kind of your perspective and your insight on how you got into the com- commercial real estate development business. Um uh, we've kind of given our listeners a little bit of background on you, but we'd like to obviously hear that from you on how you got into the business just to start out. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, yeah, first to correct something you just said, uh, my, as far as I can tell, my schedule is wide open for the rest of my life and, and, or until the governor <laughs> lets yeah. us go back to work. Amen. Uh, we basically have no appointments. I got in the business, um, in my late 20s, I was a real estate lawyer in, with a relatively fancy law firm in San Francisco. I kind of fell into being a, um, a lawyer for the, our developer clients. And I think I was making 15000 a year. And I was pretty good at basic arithmetic. And so while I was sitting there doing the deals for um, my clients, I was on the side kind of adding up the money these guys were going to make, the developers, 
and so I'm in my mid twenties and they're 30. And I said, Whoa, this guy's <laughs> going to make a million bucks on this deal <laughs> and I'm doing all the work. So uh, I just got, I pretty much decided, and it looked like a lot more fun to be on the business side than to be the lawyer filling in the blanks. So I kept hoping that some client of mine would recognize uh, how brilliant I was and, and hire me, uh, you know, and take, take me in as a junior partner. But that just never happened. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't as brilliant as I thought. <laughs> but uh, I ended up teaming up with an older client in, who was a pretty accomplished, older being 42, mm -hmm. uh, accomplished shopping center developer. And uh, he was very good at laying out shopping centers, at, at putting in the parking the right way and the, the trash and everything else. But uh, I had more experience than he did on the financing side of it. And so we started together in 1983, built a shopping center in Hillsburg, California, uh, that we still own, a, a Safeway anchored center that, that worked out really well. And that's how I, can, I fell into retail, <laughs> uh, absolutely fell into it. And right now, just to kind of zoom, if you'll pardon the pun, all the way to the present, our portfolio is supermarket based. Uh, our portfolio, for, to the extent that we're in retail, it's almost all um, supermarket anchored. So while our small tenants are, are hell, they're shut down. So they're all suffering. Our big tenants, our anchors are doing great. Uh, the supermarkets are knocking the hide off the ball right now. Uh, so we don't have the problem that if you own a power center, you know, and if you're if you're anchored by soft or hard goods, you really have problems. That, fortunately, we don't have that issue. Yeah, it's a good it's a good spot to be in right now, and 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 within my family's portfolio, saying we have grocers and we're we're thankful to have them at at this at this time <laughs> in history. Uh, and I think it's interesting because, and we can we'll. we'll touch on this a little later as well, but it kind of all boils down to fundamentals of the real estate again. Um, and, you know, certain categories are obviously needed and essential and others aren't. And we're, again, kind of getting reminded of that at this point in time. So, um, but I, you know, one thing I, I really, I wanted to compliment you on is, is your book. Um, oh, thank you. Times now. And I, I love, uh, I love the humor in it, number one, and it's a fantastic book, but it focuses on, you know, the, I, I, the important aspect of it without getting too far down into the weeds of commercial real estate development. Right. And, um, you know, you. highly, highly recommend it. And we'll put, put obviously the link to the book in the show notes, but, you know, my, my question to you is, what do you feel like is the main character trait that a developer really needs in order to be successful in commercial real estate development? Because it really is a tough field. That's a great question. I think uh, if you ask my wife, she would say persistence. Mm -hmm. You just got if you get your feelings hurt, if you uh, take no for an answer, uh, the first three or four times you hear no, you're probably not meant to be a developer. It, uh, there, there's a lot of skills that, that you need. It's almost like a Swiss army knife. You, you need five or six basic skills, but in order to succeed, you just need to hang in there. Because, you know, Clayton, I found that the, for the most part, the best you can hope to encounter as a developer 
is benign indifference. You know, like, okay, we don't really care if you succeed. But often it's, it's open hostility, uh, you know, from neighbors if you're trying to get something rezoned, from cities if, uh, if you're trying to do anything. Uh, and then meanwhile, there's, there's lots of competition and, and it's a tough business. So just hanging in there, I think. And just persistence. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with persistence. Obviously, it takes brains. The other thing that it takes, it's a little bit hard to quantify, and you guys, you, you both know this, you probably know people who are way smarter than you are, who have tried to be in development and have failed. It's not just raw intelligence. Uh, you know, I, I know guys that are, you know, I, I can talk to them for five minutes and say, whoa, this guy is smart. Uh, but what you need to have the ability to do is analyze, parse risk to say, okay, you know, a really smart guy, he'll, he'll look at a deal and he'll say, holy cow, there are these 50 risk items, right? Uh, and I'm overwhelmed by them. A, a, a natural developer will look through those 50 risks and say, 35 of them are bullshit. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, yeah, because you know, the lawyer, particularly when you're starting out, and if, and if you have a, a really persnickety lawyer, the lawyer will say, oh my God, here are all the things that could go wrong. And you, <laughs> this may be the wrong time to say this, but you say, no, I'm not really worried about World War III happening. I'll, I'll take that risk. Yeah. But you know, a developer says, here are the two risks that I really need to, to focus on. I've got to get a lease signed before I close, or I've got to get this zoning done before I close. and then, so you analyze it, and you have to accept the risk. I, when I practiced law, there were a lot of lawyers, very smart guys, highly intellectual guys, who were able to say, here are the risks, John. Uh, but they couldn't take them themselves. You know, it's like deer in the headlights. Holy cow, I'm going to risk a million dollars on this? I can't do that. So you, so you need to analyze the risk, understand it, and then be willing to take it. Because what I have found, guys, is that unless there's a real risk in the deal, it's very hard to make a real serious profit. Well, and that, and, and that, I think that's an excellent point. And kind of to, you know, coattail off of what you just said, one thing I really, really liked about your book um, is the fact that you said you can really, you should be able to analyze any deal off of a napkin. And I think... That, I mean, again, I, that's what I enjoyed about your book. It's just the, the, the fundamentals of what you should be able to do when analyze a deal. There's all these different metrics that are out there. There's analysis paralysis. And like we've said in historical shows, there's so many smart, intelligent people that can talk themselves out of deals. And to be able to, you know, underwrite a deal and make sure that it works on a surface level can save you an enormous amount of time and money. Um, and the other point, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that as well and, and what, what exactly you would write on the back of a napkin for a lot of, a lot of listeners out there that may be newer into the commercial development business. And then also the point that I really like that I kind of want you to explain, which I don't, you don't hear a lot about on a lot of books and a lot of podcasts that you listen to is, you know, the fact that you're going to lose money at some point in time in real estate. And uh, again, I felt like that was just a real, <laughs> a real, real life uh, point that you were making in your book. So I'd like to have you kind of speak about those two points if you can. Okay, um, well, take them in order. Um, 
the deals should be, it, it, it all comes down to, to, to kind of a yes, no, uh, but you ought to be able to, so you two are going to pitch a deal to me and you say, John, here's the deal. Uh, we're going to buy this apartment building for, for 2 million bucks uh, and we're going to put $500,000 into it and we're going to raise the, the rents as a result of upgrading these units by 20%. And at the end of the day, it, let's say it'll cap out at a five uh, or six or whatever it is. And we can sell for three and a half, you know, net, net, there's a $750,000 profit. It's really, I like to, I like to deal. Uh, you know, my, my wife says I should be a sports announcer because I have this real flair for the obvious. You, you know, an announcer says that they're going to lose if, if they don't put some points on the board. And so I, I try, and she says I, I oversimplify everything. Everything's black or white. But that's a good way for an initial approach. So it's like, you know, talk about what's the elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. So if, if you two are going to pitch me a deal uh, and, and it gets really, really complicated, I say, wait a second, that doesn't work. You know, it's how much are we going to put in? How much are we going to then invest to fix it up for if we're going to build? And then what's the return? I like to think in round numbers, you know, uh, so I, I can almost do it in my, I don't even need a napkin usually. I'm pretty good with very simple arithmetic. Yeah. It's just, what are we going to invest? What's the, the return going to be? And, and uh, what's it going to be worth at the end of the day? Uh, and if it doesn't pass that test, then it's not worth getting into all the gyrations. Um, and you absolutely put your finger on it. When someone says, here's the deal, here's year one and then here's how uh, income is going to go up three percent a year on this argus model and expenses are going to stay flat for for 10 years and cap rates are going to be four and a half percent in 10 years and i just say well that's a load of crap <laughs> you know, trying to predict cap rates 10 years out or like trying to predict uh, weather 10 years out it's yeah. not not possible so it's what's the deal on the day that we finish you know what's the income how much we're going to spend you know that that's the back of the napkin and, and, and are you looking at cash on cash for those john is yes. that kind of the metric i mean you're a buy and hold investor right so unless you're refinancing it's kind of hard to uh, calculate an irr so what are you guys looking at uh that's a whole nother yeah i look at it cash on cash a very simple approach and then i um so we've done 80 plus projects over the last uh, nearly 40 years, about two a year. Uh, we have about 30 um, in the portfolio. These, again, my pension for round numbers. So we've sold essentially two out of three. Uh, and why do we do that? Because we don't have outside capital partners. So in order to buy the next property, you know, we're gonna sell uh, this one. Uh, so we'll sell two, take the money, trade into the next one, or actually pay up taxes and buy the next one. But you're right, we look at it free and clear, but then if I say, you know, I really like this asset, like we bought a shopping center, a Safeway anchored center in a town called Scotts Valley, uh, just south of the Bay, a couple of years ago, I thought, wow, this is a great asset, I really like it. And so then, uh, it, it, round numbers, it was 15. I could finance it for uh, about 70%. So we put 10 million de uh, in debt on it. I think their interest rate was give or take 5%. And because of some peculiarities with the deal, uh, 
we got it at about 8% return. So then you can say, whoa. And so the, the cash on cash uh, was immediately much higher because of, the, of, of that. But still, I wanted to make sure that it worked on day one, just what was the free and clear return. And then you can juice it by you know, putting on the, the financing. Make sense? Yep. Yep, absolutely. So, and would you call yourself, which I'm pretty sure you are, a value-add or, or opportunistic investor? I mean, yes. as opposed to looking for something more stabilized, you know, turnkey, all, all teed up, are you looking for more of a project when you guys are going into a deal? You know, that's a great question. It gets complicated. So if, if we just have money sitting in the bank uh, or in stock or something, then and if you call me and say, hey, John, here's, here's a finished McDonald's or a finished office building that's 100% leased and it's a good deal, blah, blah. I say, no, thanks, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're looking for ground up or a complete remodel, something where we can do a serious value add. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to say, and of course, just for the record, for all your viewers, I'm wrong about half the time. So, so just keep this in mind. But, but I, I used to disclaimer say, from an attorney. <laughs> disclaimer, yeah. I used to say the only way to make money in real estate was to, to do a value add. That, you know, just buying something clever, uh, it just didn't work. But that actually hasn't proved out for us. Uh, we have done, and I think I just wrote a piece about that in the registry magazine, where, where I, I talked about uh, uh, the value adds, which were close to 80% versus the purchases. And, and where we would do a, a straight purchase of a finished project was on a trade. Because back to risk analysis, you, you sell a piece of property because you get a great price, you put it into a trade, you've got 45 days to identify and 180 to close. That is not enough time, in, in my view, to vet a development deal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so if, if I really want to trade, then I'll, I'll buy a finished property if I can. And, and so we bought a couple of office buildings in downtown Palo Alto, just lucky that we didn't do anything to it. We just bought it and, and they're a few blocks away and those have done uh, extraordinarily well. So we've been lucky there, but with, with uh, fresh capital, it, it's, it's got to be a value add play. If you guys said, hey, here, here's a good deal. Uh, it, it's a, an Albertsons that, that's uh, underpriced by 25 basis points. I'd say, ah, no thanks, I'm not interested unless I'm in a trade. Yeah, gotcha. Makes sense. What uh, to to kind of kind of cap off kind of the high level stuff? What do you feel is the best way to avoid failure in commercial development? Uh, being careful with your debt levels. Uh, Good answer. And your, your earlier question was, uh, which I, I'd like to point out because. I think everybody who's done more than a couple of deals in real estate has lost money. Yeah. Absolutely everybody. Now there are a few who say they haven't, but let's face it, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is just too hard. Just, just look what's happened to us. Amen. I mean, the, the largest black swan ever just fell on us. Uh, in 2006, if you had bought a property in 2004, five or six, even if you were uh, Bill Gates' son uh, or, or Albert Einstein, when the collapse happened in 2008, it didn't matter. Prices just dropped by 40%. Uh, you, if you had 
And if you financed it at 70, 75%, and this is getting to your next question, and somehow that, that loan was called, you lost. Yeah. So uh, I think Buffett said it's, it's almost impossible to lose money in real estate if you don't use leverage. Uh, so uh, we figured this out. Actually, it's sitting on my desk. Our portfolio-wide leverage is like 21, 22%. Uh, we own a number of properties free and clear. So wow. that's, that's the best way to protect yourself in a downturn. So can we pay the taxes if all of our tenants move out? Sure. Uh, so the best way to go broke is to have too much leverage. It's also in a rising market, the best way to get rich. And right. It, and you point that out in your book with a couple of examples too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, so it's, it, it's the classic double-edged sword. And, and when you're starting out and you don't have any money, you need more leverage. But if you get good at it, what, another back to the earlier question of, of selling off assets, if you can sell two out of three and use some of that cash just to pay down your debt on, on what you've got. One of the plays that we like to do is, is to buy a property with two or three parcels to it and then almost immediately sell one or two and, and then end up with one, but then just allocate the basis to that last one so we have a very limited uh, amount of equity required and, and a very small loan. That, that, that's a strong play if you can pull it off. Is, I'm just curious, John, is there a spread that you guys typically underwrite? What's, what are you comfortable with from a risk standpoint on a, on a ground up deal? Yeah, the, the old school spread when I was a kid was 200 basis points. Uh, uh, I don't think that's really changed, but what happens before, you know, we were in this roaring bull market since you guys were in high school. Uh, the, the spreads got tighter and tighter and tighter because of the competition. And so then guys are doing it for a hundred basis points or even less than that. And, and that that's when you get jammed. I think 200 is still a good number. Okay. Uh, and that, that's what we shoot for, but it, it doesn't, it, it depends if it's a super high quality deal, like say, wow, I could put Walmart in there and, and you know that you could sell a, a Walmart market at let's say a five, and you can get a 20 year lease out of them. Yeah, you could tighten it up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I was just curious what your rule of thumb is on that. So yeah, it's 200 basis points. 200 basis points, okay. Yeah. Well, well, awesome. Well, you know, you're, you're obviously in the vast majority of your portfolio is retail. So we'd like to talk to you a little bit about your expertise in retail and uh, just kind of get your perspective on a couple different things. Obviously retail has evolved so much over the past couple years and um, well, really over the past decade, but really has been impacted over the last couple years. I, I would just like to kind of give you free reign. Where do you feel like the retail real estate industry is currently and where do you see it going? Currently, it's in the tank. Well, I mean, <laughs> aside from COVID-19. Yeah. 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 Well, um, somebody pointed out to me that we, are in the, that we personally are in the necessity retail business. And I said, ah, that has a nice ring to it. So I, I think if you're a traditional shopping center, if you're a supermarket, a drugstore, a bank, a nail salon, uh, pizza parlor. I, I think those are all okay. You know, putting aside the COVID, I think the 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 soft goods and hard goods guys. Uh, 
have been severely impacted by the internet. Uh, the winners in those uh, groups, and, and Walmart strikes me as one, and, and Amazon, and I've used this analogy for, before, so forgive me, but it's Amazon's going hell bent for leather to get bricks and mortar locations, right? It's, it's it, uh, I'm sure it still is building bricks and mortar bookstores. It's building brick and mortar markets. It announced that it wanted to open 3,000 physical markets, and Amazon went the other way, and it was just picking up one little um, e-tailer after another. They're going to be like the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads to meet in the middle. They're the two behemoths that each will be perfectly comfortable. You know, it's like a switch hitter in baseball, left-handed, right-handed, internet, uh, bricks and mortar. If you can do that, you're going to succeed. But what that means uh, is you don't need as big of a brick and mortar presence, right? Uh, so I like this, this uh, black, it's the North Face uh, t-shirt, right? So I walk into North Face and I say, yeah, I like this in black, double X. Guy says, here it is. We only have one. I said, well, I'd like three or four of these. I like them in the winter. And he says, great, you'll have them tomorrow. You know, so he just, and he says, sign it here so I get the store credit, but it comes from the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So when I was a kid, you know, let's, let's say they have 300 shirts in my size. Now they've got 20. So that they need much less physical space. So the other thing facing us, our, our challenge in retail before the internet was that we had way too many square feet of, of retail space in the country. I forget the number, but is it 25 square feet per, for every man, woman, and child? Something like that. It's something on the order of 10 times as much retail here as say in Western Europe. So you combine too much retail space with the shrinking need for retail space and, and you know and it, it's we haven't really recovered from the downturn of uh, 10 years ago I, I think retail rents are probably off 25 30 percent from where they were uh, we're building a new brand new ground up safeway project uh, in a town called hercules it's under it was under construction until the shutdown but the rent on that safeway is actually lower than and then uh, the, a deal we did in 2004, so 16 years ago, and not inflation adjusted, yeah. dollar for dollar lower. Uh, why? Because there are fewer competitors out there. So it, and retail will be tricky. If one of the interesting things, I'm not sure of this, but I think what happens out of this COVID is that uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of restaurant casualties. Not so much in the neighborhood centers, the, the, the quick serve guys and the fast food guys, but the traditional restaurants, uh, I think maybe not so much your generation, but mine, I think this whole COVID scare is going to be like what happened to uh, my grandparents in the Great Depression. It's going to change people's habits. Like my grandparents wouldn't spend a dime, right, because of, of having to go through that crisis. I think people are going to start going out and sitting down in restaurants less. You know, you know, when, when the governor gives the Ollie Ollie oxen free, mm -hmm. people are still going to be reluctant to go out. So I think we're going to see restaurants shrink. And meanwhile, the the, the, the little restaurants that are, are making it, they're they're like the the, the rats that, that are surviving when when the dinosaurs are, are dying. You know, they're they're doing takeout and, and they're doing okay and they're doing takeout in a few hundred feet. 
So suddenly you got all those restaurant spaces, which I think will shrink. Sorry, wish I had yeah, fascinating. In, 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 in that same conversation, do you think that the uh, drive up, pick up grocery it, trend is going to continue? I mean, it seems logical that that would be one area. Um, and any, any other trends that you see as far as just retail, behavioral, sociological patterns that, that are going to stick? Yeah, again, great question. I, I think. Here's a question for you guys. When do you think the handshake comes back? Uh, um, man, I've been doing the elbow. I even had one. The man hugs. Yeah. I, 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 I think the man hugs could, could, could go away. I, I think, and I, oh, I got to say, I think this is crazy. I've, I thought the same day delivery thing was absolutely crazy. It, it was a, a need that we didn't really need. But I think it's been we wildly accelerated. Uh, people, my wife, all of her friends, everybody I know, that they're getting uh, everything delivered to them. Uh, so we're we're creating a, a whole planet worth of, of garbage, you know, cardboard and whatnot, but, uh, which I think is regrettable. But I think we've just basically put, you know, like in Fast and Furious, when when they hit the nitro switch. You know, on the card, I, I think the home delivery thing, we hit the nitro switch on that. I, I don't think that's going back. Uh, yeah. That's going to be a lot more. What are you, well, I'm just curious, uh, you know, again, you have decades in the business developing retail real estate, John. What are you doing now, you know, differently looking at future projects or current projects, giving, or given the, you know, uh, evolution in technology? And I guess my, so that's question number one. Question number two, do you view technology and clicks as more of a friend to retail or more of an enemy to retail from a high-level perspective? So back to my earlier point, I, I don't think e-commerce really works uh, independently. Back to uh, Amazon needing physical locations. I, I think our, the retailer future will have a presence in our shopping centers, but um, to the extent there are hard goods or, or soft goods, it'll be a smaller presence, but they need a presence. I don't think there's a single pure play e-commerce retailer or e-tailer that's making money. The, you guys know this already. 40%, 40% of all purchases are returned. Uh, you know, that there's no way... That, a traditional department store, the returns were less than half of 1%. Uh, the, um, so the, the, the e-commerce guys, they're trying, and then the other thing, which was absolutely counterintuitive to me, I found out that it's become really expensive to advertise on the internet. Thank, thank you, Google. Uh, I think the e-commerce guys are finding out that it's cheaper to have a store, let's say in, in Union Square in San Francisco or on Madison in New York, it's, it's cheaper to have a physical store where you have a lot of, of passers-by acting where the store acts as, as part of your marketing. You know, people seeing the brand there than it is to buy, a, you know, an ad that gets you toward the top on the internet. Uh, so I, the, the internet doesn't kill retail, it shrinks it. It makes it, uh, I don't know, more vibrant, I hope. 
it doesn't affect you know pizza it doesn't affect nails it doesn't affect personal services and uh groceries not that much you know, I, I think there's still the vast majority of people are going to want to pick their own tomatoes rather than have some minimum wage guy from instacart uh, pick them for them but you know that's a trend so so your projects specifically then are you just mainly still focused on grocer uh i mean again aside from everything that's going on just because that's a necessity based retailer um is there certain categories that you are bullish on right now within retail and what categories as well from a professional standpoint you know are you concerned about that you would tell other other folks in the business that hey you know i mean if you guys have this within your tenant mix you might want to reconsider well, you don't need me to answer that. You can just look <laughs> at, at, at the cap rates that, that, are, that are assigned to various uh, product types. Uh, the power centers, you know, the big box guys, you know, the, the cap rates before all this, you know, were 300 basis points higher than, than the, the supermarket centers. Now, we've never done those. Uh, again, uh, we have a couple of uh, junior major sort of soft goods users in our centers, but I, I think. Yeah, I would advise anybody from staying away from, from malls and, and power centers or, or any uh, you know, hard or soft goods anchored centers. What do you, what do you think happens with malls? Uh, it depends. If they're in a strong location on the coast or, or in a strong neighborhood, then you know, with what's happening here in California for the best of them is that they're, uh, they're being retooled so you, you take the old Safeway anchored center you tear the whole thing down you go up six stories uh, Merlone Geyer did a, a great job of this in uh, on San Antonio Road in Mountain View so you build lots of residential uh, you, on top of the center and you densify which is what we need to do anyway you know to, to accommodate all the housing needs we have mm -hmm. so, so you know, the best ones get retooled as mixed-use uh, residential office, and the ones, the the sad ones, uh, I don't know what you do. I think you have to bulldoze them because they're actually they're they're worth less than the than the raw land across the street because there's no demo cost on yeah. the land across the street. But th that stuff's not coming back, and, and I, I think the virus. Um, it, Sorry, Sears. Sorry, Kmart. You know, sorry, a bunch of guys. The virus just might finally knock all these guys off forever. You know that they, they've been walking dead for years. Yeah. So, uh, my but don't go buy a Kmart <laughs> <laughs> unless you you can unless you know how you're going to retool it. Is there any categories out there specifically that are of interest to you that may be growing and thriving that you would advocate? people look at yeah we still like supermarkets like like I said I'm, I'm building one right now uh, I just today by coincidence put some dirt uh, in escrow for a, a little a 20,000 foot market but I've got the tenant already pretty much primed for the uh, the deal uh, we'll see how that works out but yeah I, I, I've spent my whole career working with supermarkets and I, I'm still very bullish on them it's something I understand 
Uh, would you say that you guys are in acquisition mode, John? Are you know still looking at development opportunities? And if so, are you going to stay in your same geographic area, or are there other markets that you're considering? Uh, <laughs> I like to joke that a deal basically has to hit me on the nose with a two by four. <laughs> you know, I'm not actively looking, but if a, a good, you know, we, we're still under buying a couple deals a year. Uh, I've got some junior partners, you know, guys your age that that that's show me stuff. We bought a little center in Lake Oswego, Oregon last fall, a, a Trader Joe's center, a very strong center, so, which is way, you know, you've read the book, so I said I don't go two hours <laughs> beyond where I sit, but for that one, it was a finished center that, that we were going to rework, lieutenant, uh, and I decided, sure, I'd do it. So I'm always looking, uh, you know, and I'll... Just like you two, I'm sure I get a hundred deals a day that, that zip by my screen. I don't look at any of those. Yeah. It, somebody has to call me that I know and trust and say, "Hey, John, what do you think of this?" And maybe, uh, maybe out of twenty of those, I'll say, "Wow, you know, the, the napkin works on this one." You know, let's get. Or sometimes they're so good, you kind of scratch your head and you say, "Wait a second, what's wrong?" <laughs> well, that doesn't happen very often. That's for sure. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. But in your career, it might happen once or twice. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm always the best way to buy is when you don't have to. The best way to sell is when you don't have to, right? So yeah, uh, 100%. <laughs> you know, if you can get to a point where you don't need. A lot of guys need to buy because they need to generate fees, uh, and so then they'll reach for it. Now, and of course, I was in that position when I was in my 20s and 30s, but if you're good at it and you're lucky, you get to a point where you can really be choosy, and, and that's, uh, that, that's where you want to end up. What's been, uh, what's been your most successful way of sourcing deals throughout the years, John? long-term relationships in, in the brokerage community. The thing I love about retail, it, it's, the, it's the only, you know, of all of the, um, the, the real estate subsects, only retail has this long-term uh, aspect to it. You know, if you're an industrial guy, you do one deal with so-and-so industrial company. If you're a multifamily guy, you've got 500 tenants you're never gonna meet. Mm -hmm. and, and office, maybe there's a little bit of repeat business. The thing about retail, so I've been doing this for say 35 years at ICSC. Well, the same 400 clowns that I met 35 years ago are still in the business. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so if you treat them fairly and honestly, uh, it pays off. And, uh, and I, I love that about retail. And, and what I've noticed over the years, guys, is that the, um, the real estate reps for the various retailers They'll jump around a lot, but they won't leave the geographic area. So mm -hmm. they, they, they may go from Starbucks to Leslie Pools to Safeway, but their their real value to the retailer is their geographic knowledge. So that they don't tend to go from here to Chicago to to Miami and back. Uh, and so you, and then ICS is fun. I love it. It's it's like going to a high school reunion every year, you know, seeing everybody. And and so the the deals come in that way. I, I have done, uh, you know, we don't like doing joint ventures, but we've done formal joint ventures and informal joint ventures, uh, like this project that I just put in escrow. I knew that the supermarket wanted to be in this town. I said, hey, well, what do you think about this corner? 
I think I can get it. And they said, yeah, we like that corner. So I said, okay, great. I'll go tie it up. So that's the way to do it, man. That's <laughs> the way to do it. But it, it takes a while. It, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not something you can do overnight, but uh, it, it, so treating people right pays off in, in retail. So, so stay persistent, treat people right. Yeah. Don't close without the lease in hand or at the, the rezoning completed. And, and it yeah. seems like you always have, carry a good sense of humor with you. So can't take Yeah, it well, you, you got to laugh. Jesus, you got to laugh. It, it, you know, just, just for a reality. My, my life in the last uh, three weeks, it's been like Fallujah house to house warfare with all of these big credit tenants, national tenants uh, with, that are publicly listed companies or national tenants that are private, but that are backed by gazillion dollar private equity funds. And they're all saying, John, we can't pay the rent. And it's like, dude, you want me to give money to your multi-billion dollar private equity fund? Just pay the rent. You know, it, it's not fun right now. Uh, but yeah. we'll get through it. And that, that perfectly goes into what we wanted to talk about next was obviously COVID-19. Um, you know, kind of just to finish out, finish out the show here, but you know, it's something we're all obviously working through and struggling with right now. I mean, in your opinion, from an acquisition standpoint, um, and again, you know, we know you're not an economist or anything like that, but what do you feel like will, will come of this? I mean, do you see a pretty significant correction uh, coming? And, and when do you kind of sense, based on your historical cycles, will there be a pricing adjustment? I mean, are you modifying your, you know, your strategy and plan this year um, on the acquisition side of things based on COVID? I mean, kind of give us high level, you know, viewpoint on that okay so for the, that warning I, I gave you guys about being wrong half the time okay keep that in mind <laughs> I, I don't think this is a v recovery I, I i don't think really interesting yeah I, you know, i'm sorry I, I i was hoping for that i, I think it's more of a, of a check down and then i you know i don't know how many people we're going to end up with with that are unemployed 20 million uh, now they'll, they'll gradually go back to work, but I, I think we're in for a real recession, uh, and that, that could last several years. Uh, I could be totally wrong on that, but uh, and what gives you that inclination? I'm just curious. What what gives you that inclination that we're in it for three to four years? Well, we've lost this whole quarter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's let's say March, April, May. Uh, you, you can't get that back. Uh, and it's going to, I, I just have this feeling, you know, and you're right, I'm not an economist, uh, but I, I think this is, is going to be, it, it won't just be startup. I, I think if all of the entertainment, um, the sports, the 100,000 foot or 100,000 person stadiums, uh, you know, I, I think there's going to be a reluctance. I don't, I don't think people, and the, the concerts, uh, the, the dining, there's a whole lot of things uh, that aren't, they're not going to immediately kick into gear. People aren't going to be immediately hired back. And, and this unemployment is going to linger for a while, I think. Uh, I, and I would 
be delighted to be wrong as I so often am, you know, and I just, yeah, again, I love my wife. She says, well, John, you ought to be a little bit more ashamed of the fact that you're wrong so often. But I said, oh, well, <laughs> what now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what that does for us, we had three properties for sale uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to prune the, uh, the portfolio, you know, just sell the stuff that we don't really love and, and just kind of keep it moving and then have cash to buy. But basically, they're all still listed, but they're not going to sell. So that's what I just told our guys. In fact, uh, one that we were, we're going to sell, I said, screw it. You've got to pivot. You can't just bang your head against a wall. So I said, we'll just, I love this asset anyway. We'll keep it. We'll just finance it long term. So just now, it, we're, we're deciding that was a sell, but now we're going to keep it long term. Actually, a couple of them will we'll do that with. And these are supermarkets that I like. Uh, uh, more good advice: Don't fall in love with real estate. You know, you know. Uh, there's got to be a country western song out there that's something to the effect of "Don't fall in love with nothing that can't fall in love with you." You know, and that's yeah. that's good advice. Yeah, no doubt. You know, sell it when you can take a, a decent profit. Uh, we have historically, over the last forty years, done better in down markets than up. Because in up markets, you know, we're saying, holy cow, I, I can't compete. I, I don't get that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm competing with people who use other people's money. Uh, yeah. And we don't have outside partners. It's our money, my, my two partners and I. Uh, and so we end up sitting on our thumbs and looking pretty dumb in, in, in roaring markets. But then times like this, when uh, capital gets a little bit tight and people get worried and then deals start to come out, um, we, I've noticed little bumps, you know, for us. You know, we'll, like a couple of years we might buy nothing, uh, and then a couple of these down years we might buy four or five properties. Right. Sure. And so I, I, I think we're in for a, a couple year correction, and I, I think we'll do fine by it. And but again, those deals will have to bang me on the nose. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure they'll be out there. And when I mean, when do you anticipate seeing price reductions? Again, just shot from the hip. Mm. Well, first I have to be proven right. If, 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 if it is a V, if by J July 1st, everything is back to the way it was, then it, that won't happen. Uh, but if it lingers, you know, maybe in the fall, you know, if it's just kind of gradually dragging on, yeah. uh, people, you know, everybody's out there renegotiating renegotiating rent right now. Somebody just sent me something that said some amazing percentage of um, residential renters aren't paying rent this month. Really? Huh. Yes, yeah, really. I, and I said, holy cow, there are people who truly can't pay rent and there are people who are saying, well, what the hell, I, I might as well uh, give it a shot. So there, there are gonna be mom and pop uh, investors who say, you know, this isn't for me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna get out of this not getting rent on this apartment building for the next three months it isn't worth it. I'm going to sell or this shopping center. Uh, you know, I, I, I get calls from uh, smaller uh, shopping center developers and they say, well, oh, what am I going to do? You know, some of those will sell. And, and there'll be, I don't know if prices will be that much uh, better, but the motivations will be a lot better. So, yeah. what are, I'm just curious, what are you doing with your mom and pop? tenants right now 
Did you see that piece I wrote it, that was in the yeah. magazine? It was very well received in the market. We, we, we posted it in our inner office workplace for everyone to read to across the country. With the the so just to repeat what we did, uh, the world seemed to be collapsing the weekend of March 15th. We knew the governor was going to announce a shutdown on Monday. We knew our tenants, um, we're going to be utterly bereft. They're like, holy cow, I'm shut down. What am I going to do? So what, we divided uh, our tenants into three categories, pure mom and pops, uh, mom and pops who were franchisees, like say Subway, and then credit tenants, everybody from, sub, from say Starbucks to Safeway. Uh, and we decided we just forgave the rent outright on all the mom and pops for April. We told the franchisees, uh, to the extent that you can get a break from your franchisor, we'll match it. Uh, and interesting on that, Subway stepped up big time. They were great uh, to their franchisees. Uh, Roundtable Pizza, which is a regional chain, I'm not sure you guys have it, but uh, pretty big in California, they did. Uh, and then a number of franchise franchisors wouldn't do a, a thing for the, their, their tenants, which is kind of sad. Uh, and so that, that worked out really well, it, our little tenants. I, but my hope then, you know, it seems like a year ago, but March 15th was that by May 1st, they'd all be open and they'd have some a month of runway. Uh, and now I'm not so sure that, that that's going to happen. Oh, actually, I had hoped they'd be open by April because it was, it was a three-week. I thought they'd be open like today, April 7th. Uh, but that, that's not happening. So we'll have to see what happens. Uh, and then... I think what we'll do, we, the, the, the follow-on thing that we did, uh, which isn't in the article, uh, we did some research we found what we thought was the best of the guides to how to apply for the federal money. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a really good one by the, it was a chamber of commerce that was pretty simple, straightforward English. And so then we had our property managers at all our centers send that to each one of the tenants and say, you need to fill this out today. You need to go to your bank. Because yeah. uh, there's there's money for you guys out there, and we and so we don't want you coming back to us for a rent break if, if you haven't applied for this. So our hope is that uh, for May they'll at least have applied. If we have to defer a little rent, we will, but that they'll pay it back. You know when they get the the federal bailout funds. Right. Well, appreciate your guidance. Um, we're coming up on fifty minutes here, so. Okay. I'm worn out. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, all kidding aside, I mean, we really do. And we wanted to do a show kind of that's a blend of, uh, you know, your past and experience, but obviously get your insight on, on COVID and everything that's happening because it's just it's the elephant in the room right now. Um, so, you know, again, appre appreciate your time. Thanks for getting on the show with us. We'll put your, uh, your contact information and the link to your book along with some of the articles that we referenced in the show notes um as well and uh other than that you know again greatly appreciate your time thanks for doing it clayton again thanks guys best wishes take care hey listeners thank you so much for joining us today if you feel someone within your network would benefit and learn from this podcast please feel free to share this or any other episode with them if you feel you have benefited from this podcast please leave us a review on any platform where you listen to podcasts. 
We greatly appreciate your support and feedback, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next show. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, stay educated.